right. Okay, I'm Paige and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Paige. Thank you, Chris, for asking me to speak. And, and that was genuinely really, a really, really nice introduction. And as Melissa knows, that makes me really uncomfortable. So thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and actually, uncomfortable is how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know about anyone else, but when I got here, I couldn't sit and be okay in my own skin. And I didn't come to AA on the wings of success. I, I, not literally, but I stumbled and crawled in, into these church basements and into these meeting rooms like this. And I wasn't happy to be here. I was not happy, joyous, and free. And I kind of was hoping that I did not have alcoholism. See, I came here with a lot of yeah, yeah buts. I don't know if anyone has any yeah buts, or hopefully not, but yeah buts. Yeah, I maybe drink a bit too much, but yeah, but I mean, I'm not as bad as him. Or Yeah, but you know, if my ex would just get his stuff together, I could get it under control. I also came with a lot of andas, and my andas were all these things that they just, no, but I got this outside issue, and I got that outside issue. And I would also do this thing that I'm sure you wonderful people in the room would never, ever do. It's called judging the speaker. I would do that. And so what would happen, and someone would share their story, and I would listen to them talk, and I'd think, whoa, not as bad as that guy, right? And what that guy would be talking about would be the consequences of alcoholism. He would be talking about losing the job, losing the career, losing the house, losing the car. And I didn't have a lot of those things to begin with. And I'm like, man, this AA thing isn't for somebody like me. And then the very next person would speak, and I'd think, man, I'm... I'm way worse than that guy. There's no way this AA thing could possibly help a drunk like me. And I would look for all the ways I f didn't fit, and I would look for all the ways that I didn't belong. You know, and, and Primary Purpose Group, we're a big book meeting, and, and I'm probably going to bounce around the big book a whole lot tonight. But it was the two questions on page 44 that made it as simple as it needed to be for an alcoholic of my type to cut through the denial, to cut through the andas, to cut through the, the butts, all those things. And those two questions on page 44, really what they're asking, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. When I honestly wanted to stay sober, could I? Did my I will never drink again, did that have any real effect in the long term? And this is or, not even an and or, if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take. And that was me. And it pegged me square between the eyes, you had me. And then it said, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And I want you to know my experience was that was not good news. I was not excited about that. I was like, oh, spiritual awakening. Great, you know? And so what I need to understand that is, as an alcoholic, in so many ways, I'm abnormal. You know, and, and you know, I'm going to, yeah, I feel like let's bounce around the book a little bit. See, on the bottom of page 25, it gave me some news, and it did not give me good news. On the very bottom of page 25, it says, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, gosh, I hope I'm not. I kind of hope I got a little bit of that, like, light alcoholism, some... Diet, hopeless condition of mind and body. You know what I mean? It says, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. What I got here, that's what I was looking for. I really wanted one of those. I was like, oh, middle of the road. Because I saw the steps on the wall. I'm like, that's a little drastic. You know what I mean? 
And it says we were in a life, we were in a position where life was becoming impossible. Is that my experience? And it was. See, I couldn't live sober and I couldn't live drunk. I was in a place where my existence seemed futile and I could not face each day. It felt overwhelming. Life was becoming impossible. It says, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, uh-oh, I hope that's not me. And if I'm not sure whether that is me or not, I can pop over to the bottom of page 24. It says, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid unless locked up may die or go permanently insane. And how do I know if that's me or not? And what is it to be an individual with alcoholic tendencies? Well, on page triple X, if you go to the doctor's opinion, that's an easy one to remember. It talks about the different types of alcoholics. Dr. Silkworth, he's describing, you know, the psychopath. He's describing the manic depressive. He's describing, you know, the one that's, uh, you know, entirely normal, never been that one. Uh, and he's describing all of these types of alcoholics. And he says, all of these and many others have but one symptom in common that once they start drinking, they develop the phenomenon of craving. Is that my experience? And so when I look at my experience, when I take a drink of alcohol, there are two things that happen to me that are absolutely abnormal, that do not happen to non-alcoholics. And the first thing that happens when I take a drink that is abnormal, that never happens to a non-alcoholic is this. See, I take that drink and I experience this. Oh. Peace, ease, comfort. It's like my skin fits for the first time. To misquote a part of our book, it's like a new world comes into view. I'll be honest with you guys, if that was all that was abnormal about me as an alcoholic, I would not be here. I would be out there doing that and enjoying that, because that was great, right? But the other thing that is abnormal about me as an alcoholic is that once I start to drink and I feel the effect, it's like a little switch goes off in the back of my mind and it tells me more. See, I start to drink and there's this thing that happens to me where I get thirstier. I drink and I need more, and the more that I drink, the more that I need to drink, and the end of the spree, the end of the run, the end of that night, I need that next drink far, that I, far more than I needed that first. I cannot control the amount that I take. And I drink myself beyond lines in the sand. And here's, here's my experience. I drink myself into somebody I can't recognize. As a result of not being able to control the amount that I take every single time, I cross these lines in the sand. I do these things that I never wanted to do, and I hurt people in ways I never wanted to hurt people. I become somebody unrecognizable to me. I don't know who I am. I don't know how my life got like this. I don't want to look at myself in the mirror and I have a thought that just maybe alcohol has something to do with it. And that is what it means to be an individual with alcoholic tendencies, that inability to control the amount that I take. And it says it's this sort of thinking. What sort of thinking is the book describing? See, that that pain that happens after the end of the spree, after the end of the run. I'm filled with guilt, shame, and remorse, and I, I come to and I say, that's it, I'm never going to drink again. And the kicker is that I meant it every single time. I meant it. I wasn't lying. I wasn't BNS, BNS, BSing anyone. I meant it. I did not want to do it again. And that had no effect on, me, on my ability to stay sober, none. 
And see, what I found is I also have this abnormal reaction to sobriety. See, a normal person, they stop drinking and they feel better. You know what I mean? I've had people in my life, I don't know, maybe you have too, that said, hey, stop drinking, you'll feel better. And those jerks are right. See, I stop drinking. I feel better. I feel pain better. I feel that depression where it's so bad I can't get out of bed. I feel that better. You know that anxiety where it feels like somebody is stabbing your shoulder blades? I feel that better. That suicidal ideation, I don't want to live my life anymore, I feel that better. I feel that hole in the depth of my soul, I feel that better. I feel like I'm a raw, exposed nerve ending. And for some ungodly reason, the wind is blowing. I feel that better. And again, if that was all that was abnormal about me as an alcoholic, I wouldn't be here. And the reason I wouldn't be here is I would have ended my life. And that was something that I tried time and time and time again. But the other thing, the twofold abnormal reaction that I have to sobriety is I get a thought. And that thought happens when I am as sober as I am today. And that thought tells me, this time will be different. And I believe it. And I take that drink. You know what? This time will be different. And I get a thought that tells me, you know what? Nobody will ever know. And I think, you know what? No one will ever know. And I believe the lie and I take that drink and off I go. Sometimes that thought looks like, you know, Paige, you've been doing so well for three weeks. Give yourself a little reward, right? Sometimes it's a little more self-awareness and it's like, Paige, you've been miserable to everyone in your life. Absolutely everyone. Take a drink or two, take the edge off. My relapse becomes a public service. You're welcome. Um, by which I mean, I'll be back around for the amends because uh, we'll have to talk about that TV in the, in the carpet. That's, that's my bad. And if you're wondering, my bad is not how we make an amends in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, absolutely not. But also, it looks like, you know what? If I just get a really good bender, I'll, take, I'll, I'll, I'll have a real good surrender. It rhymes. What could be the problem with that? Sometimes it'll look like I, I, I'll go out for this weekend and I'll get it back together on Monday. And sometimes it looks like I'm going to kill myself anyways. So why don't I just get drunk? And the problem is I believe the lie. And see, my real issue as an alcoholic, the crux, the crux of what my problem is, is that it's, it's really like on page 37, it talks about how we, well, you know what? Let's go to page 37. Let's bounce around this thing. It's one of those lines that has become so, so true for me. It says, you may think this is an extreme case. And what we're talking about is that guy, Jim. Do we all remember Jim? He's the guy, he put the whiskey in his milk. And we're all like, ew, that's disgusting. And then we forget like Kahlua and white Russians are a thing, you know what I mean? Uh, gross. And it's that guy, he had no thought of drinking, no thought of drinking, no thought of drinking, suddenly, suddenly. And I don't have anything that I can put between me and suddenly. Now it says, you may think this is an extreme case. No, not my case. To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking, not this kind of drinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning. There inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. 
Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea went out. The next day we could ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. And see, that line didn't make a whole lot of sense to me for a while. But what I realized is that line produces that step one experience. See, what it's talking about is it's I've got two thoughts racing in my mind. And one thought is, Paige, you can drink, it'll be okay. And the other thought is, absolutely not, Paige. Every time you drink, you ruin your life. You destroy the lives around you. You don't want to drink. You have hope in this thing. You don't want to do it. And they're running this race. And given enough time, the insane thought will always win. Always win. If given enough time. And that was my step one experience. My step one experience was not the worst thing that ever happened to me. It wasn't the worst binge. It wasn't the worst bender. But it was a deep concession inside myself that there was nothing that I could do in and of myself that would allow me to stay sober. And that ending up at that worst place that I had ever gone was inevitable. That that would happen to me again and again and again. And that was my step one experience. And so if we, if we then pop back to page 25, it says, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, uh-oh, sounds like I might be as seriously alcoholic as they are. It says, we believe there's no middle of the road solution. Again, that's what I was hoping for. And it talks about how we have two alternatives. One is to go on to the bitter ends, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other, to accept spiritual help. And of course, that's a tough choice, especially for alcoholics. But it was important for me to understand that if, see, if I don't have alcoholism, I've got choices. There's a lot of things that I can do and a lot of things that I can try. But if I have alcoholism, and how do we define that again? Once I drink, I can't control the amount that I take. And when I try to stay sober on my own power, it does not work. I have the mental obsession. If that's the case, I've got two options, two options. And one is to go on to the bitter ends, doing the best I can to manage my life and try to not kill myself until something else takes me out. And the other, to dive into this work and this way of life. And what I learned is to not choose is to make a choice. If I do not choose the spiritual way of life, I have chosen an alcoholic death. And I want you to know, when I got here, I, again, was not happy about that, and I thought I was somehow the exception. And that left me in the place where I was absolute hopelessness, and that was the reality of my condition. See, step one allows me to see myself as I really am, hopeless. The reality is I will drink again unless I have that spiritual experience that is on offer. And all that was asked of me to believe in step two is the possibility that there could be a power greater than myself. And see, I don't know about you, but when I came to step one, I, alcoholism was clearly a power greater than myself, but I had lived my life run by other powers greater than myself. I will give you my examples. You don't have to share yours. I have found the Calgary Police Service to be a power greater than myself. <laughs> time and time again. And I'm just saying, yeah. Oh, yeah, when I have ended up in the back of a police car, I might have made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of that power, and all I'm saying is we can come here and we can make that decision and go to better places, right? And the truth is, and I, I, I'm codependent. That doesn't make me alcoholic, but I put all my power and all my faith and all my trust in, in the relationship. And if that could be okay, I could be okay. 
And I thought, and I made that a power greater than myself. Also, my experience time and time and time again is there was not a time where I would not come to the power of alcohol and believe that to be a power greater than myself. See, there wasn't a single problem in my life that I would not turn to that I did not think alcohol could solve every single time. What is that but a power greater than myself? And see, all I had to believe was that there could be one. In the second step, I don't need to know it. I don't need to define it. I don't need to understand it. I just need to believe that maybe. And all that is asked of me to believe is also that that spiritual awakening is possible. And my experience was a lot like many others, that I saw you guys happy and sober at the same time, even on weekends. It took me a little while to believe you guys were doing the weekend thing. I was like, what are you doing? What are you? I maybe should have gone to more weekend meetings, but I think I was. You know what I mean? I just had a hard time keeping track of this week. I don't know. But all I needed to believe was that there was a power working in your life and that that power could work in my life. You know, and, and for those that might be new and, and to this program, to this fellowship, to AA, you know, I, I'll just, I'll be honest, I came here with a lot of prejudice. I came here with a lot of old ideas about this power. See, I got here young, and I know some of you are like, what are you, 12? Uh, yeah, ma'am, I mean, emotionally, if you ask my sponsor, uh, she'll tell you that. Like, what are you, 12? Uh, but I got here young. And one of the things is when I got here young, I came with that idea that, you know, God, that's not cool. Right? And i got to be cool. Now, keep in mind, never in my life have I ever been cool. But if for some reason I'm hanging out in these church base- basements drinking the coffee, and I'm like, i got to be cool now, you know? And, uh, and, I, and I would hear people use that word God. And I'd be like, oh, I know what they mean, and I don't like it. Now, I also want you to know, I did not ask them. There was no communication, no back and forth. No, hey, what do you mean by that? No, no, I'm just going to decide I know what you mean and I do not like it. And so what happened for me was I started to use the word higher power because uh, that was the one that was a little hip slick and cool when I got, when I got sober, higher power. There's cooler ones now, pew, pew, uh, but higher power. <laughs> Who invited me? It's Chris. Chris invited me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I started to use the word higher power. But I don't know if you're aware, that's two words. That's a whole lot of syllables. And so I started to use the word God, out of convenience. And again, if you're worried I got here young, I'm just an efficient alcoholic. I'm all about efficiency. I burnt my life to the ground. That dumpster was on fire quite quickly, quite efficiently, if I might add. And I'm here for the word God, it's efficient. And what happened for me is I started to use that word in prayer. I started to use that word in meditation. I started to use that word in the steps, and the thing happened for me. The spiritual awakening began to happen for me. And that word no longer meant what I assumed that you meant when you used that word. That word began to mean what I experienced as the result of these steps. And what I have found in my, in my experience is that the God on offer, the higher power, the creator, the spirit of the universe on offer here is, not, a, is God, not one of belief, but one of experience. And what I'm asked to do is experience this power. I just need to believe that it exists. And so I don't want to use all my time, and I'm not doing good at moderating my time. Um, so I'm going to use the word God. But I want you to know that as I use that word, I'm using the con- what I mean by that, because again, I didn't have the courage to ask, is I mean the conception of a power greater than yourself 
that you are the most open to. That is what I mean when I use that word. And one of the other barriers that I had when I got here was, if there is a God, why did this happen to me? If there is a God, why do I have alcoholism? If there is a God, why did that happen to me? Why did that happen to me before I was drinking? Why did that happen to me in my alcoholism? And why did that happen to me in sobriety? And what I did was I took it through the steps. Column one, I put the word God, and I started to get freedom from it. And see, here's one of the things that is my experience, asking why I have alcoholism. At least for me, it's a fruitless task. See, it for me is a lot like being lost in the middle of the desert. And I am without food and I am without water. And I know that I'm in trouble and dusk is settling in. And in that moment, in that moment, I am given a map. And that map is our 12 steps out of our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that moment, it's far more important that I use that map to get my butt out of the desert than I figure out how I got there in the first place. To get out, to get freedom. And see, I, I put that word God I, in the columns and I started to get freedom from it. And I want you to know, I can't answer your why. Because I think we all come with the why did this happen to me? And I can't answer your why, but I can share with you freely my why. See, as a result of doing those steps, I started to get freedom. As a result of amends, I began to feel that guilt and shame fall for me. As a result of sharing my inventory with another human being, learning that I was not alone. But it really was in sponsorship, in working with other people, that I really got the answer to my why. And the answer to my why is I am an alcoholic and those things happen to me so that I can sit down with another alcoholic and say, yes, me too. Yes, me too, I felt that way. Yes, me too, I drank like that. Yes, me too, I did that thing. And here is how I got freedom from it. Let me show you how. And I can be this, a small part in the miracle of the lives of others. And that has given my life meaning and purpose beyond any thing that I could ever imagine, that is my why. And there is freedom. You know, I have the privilege of doing some talks here and there and uh, to, to do workshops and big book studies and stuff like that. And I, I remember I was zooming in uh, to, to a woman's uh, step do, and they asked me to speak on a step. And you know that secret, that deep, dark thing that I never wanted to share with anyone, and the deep, dark things that had happened to me. There were questions, and I was able to speak about them freely in a room full of, Zoom room, full of 50 women that I had never met. There is real freedom on offer here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so for me, like, one of the things that I, I, I really have come to believe is that if I take these actions with the best of my ability, I will get the results. We have promises all over this book. But they don't happen if I stay stagnant. They happen as I take the actions. But you know, one of the things it talks about on, on page 25, it says there is a solution. There is. See, sometimes in the rooms we focus on a solution, and I think that's important we have one. And our solution in Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps. That is our solution. But then it goes on to say almost none of us liked. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process required for successful consummation. What that means is almost none of us like the steps. Almost none of us came. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I don't know about you, I got here and I did this thing. 
that I'm sure you wonderful people would never do, and it's called auditing the steps. So I would sit and I would look at the steps on the wall and I would think, that one? Maybe that one? Some of that one? Absolutely not. Hard no to that one. See, none of these were actions that I was just about to do. Oh, a searching and fearless moral inventory? I have my notebook ready to go. I'll make amends to all the persons I've harmed, including my ex. I'd love to. <laughs> just about to do that. Oh, work with alcoholics? They're so reasonable and punctual and not at all sensitive and self-centered. I'd love to spend my time with them. You know, prayer and meditation? Daily inventory? Absolutely. No, almost none of us liked. And that is the good news and that is the bad news. See, the good news is liking the steps is not a prerequisite for doing them. Thinking that they're a good idea, not a prerequisite for doing them. Believing that I'm worthy of them, not a prerequisite for doing them. What matters is that I do them. And as a result of doing them, I get freedom. And so that, and that, why would I do them? And on page 25, it says we do them for two reasons. Two reasons. One, I've come to the end of myself, the end of my abilities, my, my ability to stay sober on my own power, my ability to function and live my life. I'm at the end of myself, and I see that it works for you. I see that you are able to stay happy and sober at the same time. And I'm on this precipice of change. And what that means is I'm on this cliff. And what I'm deciding to do is to take this leap of faith. And that's what that third step decision is all about. To decide to work these steps like my life depends on it as a way of life. Turns out my life does. That is what is asked of me in this third step. And again, it's a bit of a tough decision. I don't know. I don't really want to make amends to that jerk. You know what I mean? But I've come to the end of myself. And see, this is what my experience with the third step is like. One of the absolute gifts of my sobriety is to have my niece and my nephew back in my life. And, and they are like my favorite human beings. My nephew just turned 13. Um, but when they were both toddlers, uh, they would do this thing that toddlers do, which is uh, climbing up on furniture that is a little bit too high. And then they would do this thing where they're like, Auntie Paige, catch! And then they would leap. And then I would have to catch them. And of course I have a coffee in my hand, so it's, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, don't drop the toddler. Like that, right? But every single time they would climb up and they would take that leap of faith with complete abandon. And I, it's one of those things, why? Well, their experience is that they had never been dropped. And that has been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have had some life on life's terms and I have never been dropped. But I don't know that yet, so I take that leap of faith. And in the third step, really, it's an employment contract. See, in the third step, I get my like formal pink slip. And if, you, if you've been sponsored by me, you've gotten a physical pink slip, because I think that's funny. Uh, and so I give you a pink slip, because you're fired from the management position of your life. Now, hold on. If you want to try to fight for your job, I just want to point something out. In step one, we admitted our life was unmanageable. I was the one managing it. You know what I mean? I managed my life into an unmanageable position. All I'm saying is if I managed anything as poorly as my life, I ought to be fired. You know what I mean? You throw me as manager as a blockbuster, that's real low stakes. No one's expecting the blockbuster to do well, right? I ought to be fired. And in step two, I'm given this idea of a new manager. And I haven't gone to work for this manager yet. I don't know this manager yet but it seems to work for you. 
And then the third step, what I'm doing is I'm putting pen, not putting physical pen to paper, but spiritual pen to paper. I'm signing that employment contract. And in, that, in step three in that employment contract, it says that God will provide everything that we need. I got some news. That's not what I want. Those are different. I have come to learn that in life, and that was disappointing. If, if I keep close to God and perform his work well. How do I keep close to God? Well, it's real simple. I work these 12 steps like my life depends on it, because it does. And what's God's work for somebody like me? And, and I, I'm going to go on a little tangent. I don't normally tell this story, um, but I'm doing it, so it's happening. We um, At 18 months into my sobriety, um, I developed a, a neurological condition that left me in the use of a wheelchair. And I have other you know, symptoms and other things that happened. I had to learn how to read again, which I will say that means I had to learn how to say anonymity twice in front of all of y'all. So I just, I'm pointing that out. Um, and you know, I had chronic, chronic health problems. And what happened for me is I was dying. But I was not dying of my physical neurological problems. I was not dying of my health condition. I was dying from untreated alcoholism. I was dying from the bondage of self. I was dying of self-pity. And I didn't even know it. And I, I would do that thing that, that thing that I'm sure many of us want to do, that emotional turtle where we put the blanket over our heads and I don't want to be here anymore and I don't want to do it. And why the heck am I sober if this is what my life is going to be like? It's not fair. See, again, I think I know what's best for me and again, I am wrong. And I was going through that thing that we go through often, living this way of life, we were losing people. And we were going to funeral after funeral after funeral. And funeral after funeral after funeral, and there was one more funeral, and I did not want to do it. And I did not want to go. And in that moment, God showed up in the way that often God does for me, with an alcoholic asking me for help. And a friend called me and said, Paige, I need you to be there. And because you had taught me, well, I said yes. And I go to that service. And it's heartbreaking. It, it's, I, I, it's a young man um, who died of our illness, who died of our, this disease. And uh, I don't think there's anything more heartbreaking than having to watch parents bury their child. And it was hard. But as I'm leaving the service, there's a woman who comes up to me, and she's also in a wheelchair. And she says to me, I'm so glad you're here because I don't feel so alone. And when I look at what is God's will for somebody like me, it is to show up and be of love and service and nothing else. Very specifically, love and service to God's drunks, because I was made to work with God's drunks. But love and service to all of God's children. To be an expression of God's love in the world. That, that is my job. And of course, one of the things that gives us a number of ways in step three in which we can relate to that power, which is God. It talks about uh, one of my favorite. He is the principal. We are his agents. And what that means, an agent is somebody who is legally allowed to act on behalf of the principal. So I'm acting on God's behalf as I go into the world. That might change how we drive on Deerfoot. That might change how I show up to my family. That might change how I show up to the grocery store. And that's what that means, but that's not how I like to read it, because I'm an alcoholic, so I'm going to fill in my own blanks. You know what I mean? Um, I see it like agent for God. All right. I got fired, but I got a new job, agent page. Pew, pew, double O page. Going to get a super cool agent job. And in step three, it tells me what my job is. It says, next we launched 
Okay, awesome, I'm gonna launch this exciting, cool job, woo! Which is personal house cleaning. Oh man, like I got, I, see I think I'm gonna be double O page. I'm, I'm relegated to house cleaner. And so I have this metaphor and, and just bear with me with it. At the depth of my soul, there's this house. It's this my spiritual house. And if, and if you're kind of following along with me, what I, want, what I want you to know is in the depth of your soul, and you can be like, no, I don't have a house, that's fine. But if, if you're with me on this, in the depth of your soul, is a spiritual house. And what I want you to know is the house is good. The house is incredible. The house is absolutely beautiful. It has been created by the capital C creator, right? The most amazing architect. It is a spiritual Frank Lloyd Wright, and I wish I knew other architects. You know what I mean? It is a beautiful, incredible house. But the problem for me is I am a bit of a hoarder. <laughs> I have got a hoarding problem. Call in TLC, call in the cameras, you know what I mean? It is bad. And again, you wonderful people don't have hoarding problems. I'm just saying I do. So this little spiritual hoarder over here. And so I got these things. And again, I'm sure you wonderful, wonderful people do not have these things. But they're called resentments, right? And uh, my resentments, they're like these newspapers that are decades old. And what they are is they're stacked all the way from floor to ceiling, all the way. And so what happens when I've got those newspapers all the way to floor to ceiling, it blocks out the windows and the light can't come in and I'm sitting in darkness. And then I don't know about you guys, so I'll just speak for me, I've got these things called fears. And those are like those empty bottles and cans. And see, I can't step and I can't make a move in that house without them clanging and clattering and sound bigger and louder than they really are. And I can't move because of that fear. And then, again, this is just me, not any of you, uh, I got this stuff called sex conduct. It's all like the dead cats behind the freezer. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know they're there. I can smell them. Um, I also want to really emphasize no cats were harmed in the making of the spiritual metaphor. It is only a metaphor. And so what I'm doing in that fourth step is I'm cleaning that house. And I start pulling down those newspapers one by one. And as I look at those headlines, I see that the information was wrong the whole time. See, I thought it was you were the jerk and you were the bad guy and you were the villain. And I see the truth is, no, that was me. And the light begins to come in. And in the book, there are a number, a number of spiritual metaphors for God. And one of my favorite is God is light. Because you'll notice light is not what I see. I, I don't see light. Light is the way in which I see. And so when there is light, everything changes and yet nothing has changed. And I don't know about you, this has been my experience with continued inventory, that everything changes. See, my childhood got better. My childhood didn't change. My family got better. My family didn't change. The people in the grocery store got better. The jerks at the meeting got better. They didn't share as long. They shared the same life, you know what I mean? They changed, and yet they didn't change. I changed in how I saw them change. And as that light comes in, I begin to see how I can clean up those bottles and cans. And how if I rely on that light, I don't have to step and stand in that fear again. And then I, I deal with the cats. 
uh, and I come up with an ideal so that I never have to live that way again. And so when I sit down with God and another, another human being, that's when I get all those bags, I get all those boxes, I get all of that stuff out of the house. And see, in that fifth step, there's two ways to look at the word admitted. It said we admitted to God and uh, to, uh, to uh, ourselves to God and to another human being, right? And so one is to admit is, is a bit like a confession, right? So I got to admit, hey, I got to admit I stole your car, I slept with your husband, and I peed on your carpet, right? A bit of a confession, right? I'm just kidding. I would never do that. It was linoleum. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the other way is, imagine you get a ticket to maybe it's a hockey game, maybe it's a football game, maybe it's a concert. And on that ticket, what does it say? It says, admit one. And so one way to look at admit is a confession. The other is to say, to let in, to let in God's light and to let in another human being. And that light begins to radiate in that house. And, and six and seven, what I do is I begin to take all that garbage to the curb. And after that big house cleaning, I get excited. Do I get a promotion? Do, am I done house cleaning? Well, no, but I do get relegated to the willing depart, willingness department. And step six is all about becoming willing for the cosmic garbage man, the spiritual 1-800-God-junk guy, and if you're struggling with the word God, you can use that, but it's a whole lot of words, um, to come and take it away. See, what I have come to, to learn is that defect removal is upper management, and I am long since fired from upper management. And in step seven, I ask, and man, there's something incredibly powerful about that seventh step, at least that seven-step prayer. Because for me, what I think, what I think is I'm coming to AA and I'm approaching AA like I approach so many things in life. See, in so many things in life, I want to climb that ladder of success and I want to do better and I want to be better and I want to get more and I want to succeed more. And that has not been my experience in AA. My experience in AA is I'm surrendering and I'm giving more and more of myself to that unconditional love that is God. See, in step one, I, I realized that I'm powerless over my alcoholism, and I can't do anything about that. And in that third step, what I realized is that I can't overcome selfishness and self-centeredness. That is what we think the root of our troubles is. And I'm driven by a hundred furs of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And I can't overcome self with self, and I need more God. And then I come to those resentments, and again, I learn that I cannot overcome them on my own power, and I need God's help. And again with fears, right? And the fear promise is an incredible promise. It talks about just to the extent that I rely, humbly rely on God and do as I think he would have me. Does he enable me to match calamity with serenity? I can't overcome fear on my own as well. Got that ideal, but I can't live up to it. I have to ask God to take me to that ideal. And in the seventh step, what I'm doing is I am surrendering more and more of myself to that unconditional love and that unconditional power. In step seven, it says, my creator. To create, other than a mess of my life, is to bring forth into the world. My creator. It implies to be made with love. That I, and who I am, has been made with love. I am now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. See, after that fifth step, I just told another human being the worst things that I've ever, I've ever done. I've shared about how my defects have hurt myself, hurt others, ruined the, those, the lives of those around me. 
And what that seven-step prayer is, is telling me is that God wants me. And God wants a relationship with me. And not in spite of those things that I have done, but because of those things that I had done. And that's a different kind of unconditional love. And I know that to be true because it asks, in the seventh step prayer, it says, I uh, ask that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my use to you and my fellows. I am meant to be of use. And I go out in the ninth step and I actively seek right those wrongs. And that the purpose of the ninth step The purpose of the ninth step is to fit myself to be, again, to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. That is why I do it. But one of the most unexpected gifts of that is I find forgiveness. See, what happens is in the book, it tells us in nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens. You know what's unexpected for an alcoholic of my type? I show up to the amends process, and I think it's going to go awful. I think they're, I didn't even commit a crime, but I think they're going to call the police. You know what I mean? I think it's going to go as bad as it could possibly go. And in nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens, which is to say, it goes well. It goes well. And I have that experience, and I have that faith to draw upon. And the most incredible thing is those defects, they begin to really fall for me. Of course, it's in the seventh step, but it's also for me. You know, I don't know about you, but I have, I have had defects that have gone as soon as I have amended that behavior. And there are times, man, I show up to amends, and I'm doing it just so I can get free of the defect. I'm doing it so I can get free of the resentment. See, I believe my motives are secondary to the actions that I take. And so coming back to that house metaphor, in steps 10 and 11, what is asked of me is to continue to keep that house clean. And I have to do it for a number of reasons. And let me rephrase that. I get to do it for a number of reasons. The first reason why I keep my house clean is, I don't know if you saw, it was a mess. You guys, it was really bad. You could probably smell it down the block. You know what I mean? It was bad. And I don't ever want my house to get as bad as it did that day when I got here. Because if it gets that bad, that sunlight of the Spirit will be blocked and I will drink again. It can't ever get that bad. So that is why I keep that house clean. Another reason why I keep that house clean is on page 25. And you know what? I'll, I'll maybe read this because it's, it's really um, one of those lines. This is the spiritual awakening that we're talking about, and this is a promise. It says, the great fact Not the maybe, not the here's hoping, not the keep coming back. The great fact is just this and nothing less, nothing less than this fact. It says we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. Page 44, it said I needed one of those. That's good news. That's good news. Which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. The way in which I show up and see the world has changed. The way in which I think about the world has changed. The way in which I act in the world has changed. And it says the central fact, not theory, not wish, not maybe, but the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. Another way to read that is that my creator has entered into my heart and lives there 
in a way which is indeed miraculous. And God commences to do for us that which we could not do for ourselves. What is it that I could not do for myself? Stay sober and happy at the same time. And so much more. So much more than that. See, again, I never sold the power of, of booze short. I didn't sell that power short, and I'm reminded to never sell the power of God short, the power of AA. But I keep that house clean because at the center of my heart, it turns out I have a roommate, and that is one of the places in which God lives. And for me to get to know that power better, I need to keep that house clean. And the third reason I continue to keep that house clean is because my life depends on helping you. My life depends on carrying this message to you. My life depends on showing you how you can clean your house. It does no good if I haven't done it in a while. I need to be adept at keeping my house clean so I can help you. See, on page 20, it tells me that my very life as an ex-problem drinker depends upon my constant thought of others and how I meet, might meet their needs. I have come to find, I got here and I'd uh, sponsorship, was one of those things that I thought was like extra special gold tier AA. No, it is a minimum requirement for an alcoholic of my type. And man, I would have sold myself short had I not done all of this and carried this message to others. And it really is in working with others that my dark past becomes that principal asset to be a small part of the, the miracle in lives of others, to see their lives become recovered to see their families come back together and to be a small part of that, to give my life meaning and purpose and the most painful, awful things that I have ever done, meaning and purpose beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And I'm going to now tell the biggest alcoholic lie, which is I'll end on this. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I've found for me is that Alcoholics Anonymous is a gift that sobriety is a gift and emotional sobriety is a gift. Now, do we have any big book nerds in the audience? Yeah, woo! Uh, so for a big book nerds, you might be like, hold on, hold on, Paige, excuse me, it's a gift? It says a price had to be paid. Yes, the price that it has to be paid to receive that gift is destruction of self-centeredness. Now, when I'm coming up against destruction of self-centeredness, that seems awful. That seems awful. It seems like I'm giving up a part of myself, but really I'm giving up that which was killing me the entire time. No, don't worry about it. You're good. And I'm almost done too, so don't you worry. Um, I'm giving up that which was killing me the entire time. And so what I've learned Alcoholics Anonymous to be, it's a lot like waking up on Christmas morning. And see, down those stairs under that tree, the lights are on. There's a gift, and that gift is perfectly, immaculately wrapped. It's got a beautiful bow, and it's got a name tag with your name on it. it says, for mine, it says Paige. It's already there. It's already there. But what I need to do is I need to get out of bed, and I need to get down those stairs. And in doing so, I receive the gift. And what I'll just ask is if there is anyone who has not yet received the gift, stick around and ask us for help after this meeting. Because again, our life depends on helping you. So thank you for the opportunity to share.